Today's news starts with this piece on the year's revenue. The Treasury returns showing the revenue for the quarter and year ended June 30 are of a satisfactory character. The approximate receipts for the three months amounted to £650,000, a sum which is considerably over the average for the three previous quarters. This brings up the income for the financial year to £2.4 million for the colony. On the whole, the state of the finances may be regarded as thoroughly satisfactory. There is evidence that the revenue is in a fairly buoyant condition, and with the exercise of economy and expenditure, the colony has been enabled to show, for the third consecutive year, a considerable surplus in place of the deficits which succeeded one another during the long years of depression, before the initiation of a protective policy and the development of the barrier trade. This positive financial news is most definitely not that of 2020. This piece from the Express and Telegraph in Adelaide is from 130 years ago. For July 2nd, 1890, this was the news. This was the news is a fortnightly podcast that takes the news from this date many years ago and shares it with you in one news update. I'm Broderick Matthews, bringing you stories from a past that was looking to a much brighter future. Welcome to the latest episode of This Was The News, where we're exploring the papers from July 2nd back in 1890. Now, the finances of the colonies were dominating, South Australia in a good position, New South Wales doing well too, Queensland a bit behind the eight ball, but uh, they soon caught up. I don't want to dwell on financial news when there's much more random interesting things from all the local news. So let's start with this piece on bad streets from the Bathurst Free Press and Mining Journal in New South Wales. Bathurst is not the only municipality in which there are bad streets. In Orange, the Inspector of Nuisances on Monday summoned a batch of citizens, including a doctor, a clergyman and a lady, for having driven across one of the footpaths. Sounds like the setup to a joke, doesn't it? But the article continues. The defence set up, in each case, that it was impossible for vehicles to be driven along the street without being bogged up to the axle. And one of the defendants plainly charged the inspector with highway robbery in thus seeking to make residents pay a fine for doing what they were compelled to do by the failure of the council to keep the streets in repair. The police magistrate refused to inflict a fine, saying that he would drive over the footpath himself under such circumstances, and if the bench fined him, he would take the case to the Supreme Court. His two brother magistrates, one of whom was an alderman, differed from him, however, and after the first case had been heard, the police magistrate left the bench. The informations were eventually withdrawn on defendants paying costs. Meanwhile, in the Cairns Post, this little piece... If the statement is true that the contractors for divisional board work on the Russell River are employing Aboriginals to do it, the board should thoroughly investigate the matter. Hmm, no slavery in Australia, hey? Moving over to the Cootamundra Herald now in New South Wales and this short piece. In dentistry, Mr F.C. Burnell Jones of Wagga is to visit this town on 3rd July next and will be found at the Albion Hotel. 
probably not a bad spot to do some dentistry at that point in time with a ready supply of a certain liquid painkiller. Meanwhile, over in the Western Herald Burke, a couple of pieces of local news. At the Temperance Hall last evening, the Burke Literary and Debating Club held a most successful meeting. The Reverend Mr Morgan filled the chair. The debate, is thrift a virtue, was decided in the affirmative after an animated and logical discussion. That's right, crazy times happening in Burke. Meanwhile, in another piece of Burke news, an interesting ceremony took place at the Roman Catholic Church on Sunday morning last, at 7 o'clock, when Mr J.J.E. Catmuir was joined in holy wedlock to Miss M. O'Connor. The bridesmaid was Miss A. Drew and the best man Mr A. Harris. The bride wore an ottoman silk dress with orange blossoms and chul veil and looked quite charming. Miss Drew was also becomingly dressed. The Reverend P. Lynch performed the ceremony and the happy pair, after breakfast, departed by the mail train to Sydney for their honeymoon. Yes, no messing about in Burke. Uh, Get up early, have your ceremony, breakfast, and then off on the honeymoon to Sydney. Finally, some animal news to finish off this run round the local papers. And this piece from the advertiser in Adelaide, South Australia, talks about the Tiger Colonel. The following account of a wonderful incident in the life of Colonel Sir Edward Bradford, the new Chief Commissioner of Police in London, has been supplied to the review in Adelaide by a resident. When he was in India, Colonel Bradford had deservedly earned a great reputation as a tiger slayer, and his prowess was known far and wide. One day, news was brought to him that a man-slaying tiger had inflicted great damage to life in a certain district. The people prayed Colonel Bradford to rid them of the pest. He accordingly went out, accompanied by two natives, each with a spare gun. The party came suddenly on the man-eater, and the colonel fired on him at once. Unfortunately, the shot did not take effect on a vital part. The colonel had been taken by surprise and had only succeeded in wounding the beast. Turning quickly around for one of the spare guns, the colonel found that the cowardly natives had abandoned him and were safe up trees with the guns. In a moment, the infuriated beast was upon him. He knew that his only chance of escape was to feign death. But how to do this? The tiger seized his arm and slowly crunched and crunched it. Still, the colonel feigned death and bore the excruciating pain without moving a muscle. At last, when his arm was mere pulp, the tiger, satisfied that his victim was dead, abandoned his prey until he could return to carry it away at sunset. The natives came down from the trees from which they had watched the terrible spectacle. A message was sent to the nearest surgeon, 100 miles off, and the body of the still-conscious colonel was carried in the direction by which the surgeon would come. Halfway they met, and the arm was at once amputated. Then only did Colonel Bradford lose consciousness. This is how it is that the new Chief Commissioner has but one arm. Yes, the Tiger Colonel, better than the Tiger King, I reckon. Meanwhile, this piece on some zoo animals from the age in Melbourne. 
a number of animals and birds for the Melbourne Zoological Gardens have just arrived on board the steamer Bankura from India. And it is a long time since such an important and interesting addition has been made to the collection. Amongst the varieties received may be mentioned a magnificent Bengal tigress, two Assam bears, two civet cats, two adjutants, seven king vultures, an immense black goat from northern India, two baboons, three Indian monkeys, three large Assam rock snakes, and a large number of other creatures. Sounds like a regular Noah's Ark that was coming over on the ocean. Now, unfortunately, the voyage wasn't all smooth sailing as the article continues. On the voyage over, one of the civet cats got loose, and as it raced around the deck, it passed the adjutant's cage and was at once pinned to the ground by the massive bill of one of those birds. The keeper came up immediately after, but was too late to save the creature's life. All the other animals have arrived in excellent health and condition. And I guess with the death of the civet cat, the adjutant bird really had to foot the bill. Let's have a short break. For men only. Do you love your wives and strive to merit their devotion? If so, and your efforts have failed you, do not be discouraged, but try our plan. Buy a bar of Dingman's Electric Soap and induce your wife to try it. You will be surprised at her careful attention to you after once using this, and it is only just that she should appreciate you more, for in introducing electric soap to her notice, you are reducing by one half the hard work attended on wash day. Dingman's Electric Soap. A place for everything, and everything in its place. A very good maxim, but difficult to observe, as most men will admit, should they have many loose papers in connection with their business. To such, we recommend the roll-top desk, made by Mrs. Stahlschmidt and Co., in which they can keep private papers, books, etc., without fear of misplacing them. Sole agents, the F.B. Wheeler Company, 205 Clarence Street, Sydney. Continuing on the news from July 2nd, 1890, and this week the podcast takes a delve into the world of true crime. This piece on the Longreach murder was published in the Western Star and Roma Advertiser from Queensland. The Barcaldon Police Magistrate, with Senior Constable Malone and the police, returned from Longreach, to which place they proceeded on Monday week for the purpose of investigating into the reported murder of James Gleeson, a shearer who was poisoned on the 13th June last. From the information to hand, it appears that on Sunday the 14th instant, Senior Constable Carmody, stationed at Aralala, received the following letter from Mr J Willett Jr., the licensee of the Longreach Hotel. I lay information of the death of Mr J Gleeson, shearer, at my house. I suspect foul play, as his mate and my brother had same symptoms from eating bread and butter at their camp. Come at once, as the dead body is in the bar, waiting interment. I have secured what was left of the rations and have them under lock and key. 
Senior Constable Carmody immediately went to Longreach, where he was shown the dead body. He saw no marks of violence upon it. Afterwards, the people at Longreach buried the body, and Carmody took possession of several packages containing rations, which were handed over to him by Mr Willett. Dr Hewer, who was engaged by the Colonial Secretary to make post-mortem examination of the deceased, arrived at Longreach on Thursday, and the body being exhumed on Friday, the doctor removed the stomach and intestines and placed them in jars of spirits, also the heart, kidneys and liver. The body was in an advanced state of decomposition, and Dr Hewer was unable to say what was the cause of death, but from his examination of deceased, he was enabled to say that there was not sufficient organic disease to account for death. The inquiry held by the police magistrate lasted for four days. 22 witnesses were examined, including five Chinese. According to the evidence, it is clear that Gleason's death was not self-inflicted, as was reported last week, but that the poison was placed in rations, of which he and his mate partook but by whom this was done, there is no evidence to show. There appears to have been no examination made for tracks to and from the tent of the murdered man, and although strychnine was reported to have been discovered in the bread and flour, that fact was not brought out of the inquiry. The evidence of Tom Smart, Gleason's mate, shows how the quarrel with the Chinese occurred, and also how the men were poisoned. His version of the affair may thus be summarised. Smart and Gleeson were shearers, who had been working at Wellshot. They came to Longreach on the 7th of June and made a camp on Black Gin Creek, about half a mile from the Longreach Hotel. On the day of their arrival, Gleeson bought flour and other rations from Marshall's store. They made bread out of this flour and it was all right. Every night, the two men came up from their camp to the hotel and returned to their tent about nine or ten o'clock and walked by a track which led past the back of a China man's store. On Saturday evening, the two men were returning to their camp about ten o'clock. There were two other Europeans ahead of them. Gleason was intoxicated. They came to where some Chinese were seated around a fire. Gleason began to swear at them and chase them about, He took off his coat, and then Smart came back and tried to take him away. There was a shed over the fire, consisting of four posts stuck in the ground, with iron on top. Gleason caught hold of one of the posts and pulled the lot down. They then started for the camp. Gleason pulled out a match to light his pipe, and Smart, looking back, saw the Chinaman's hut on fire. On the next Thursday night, the two men went to a performance at the hotel and on Friday morning had breakfast and dinner off some old bread they had in their camp. After dinner, Gleason baked some bread. While the bread was being baked, Albert Willett, a lad 14 years of age, came to the camp. Gleason asked him to have some bread and butter. They all three sat down. Gleason said, "'Do you fellows taste this bread bitter?' Willett did not eat much of it. Smart did not at first notice a bitter flavour, but he afterwards detected it. Gleason then said the bitter taste must have come from the zinc dish, which he had borrowed from a Singalese to work the dough in. Shortly afterwards, Gleason said he felt very bad. 
He had been to the creek for a billy of water and nearly fell down. Smart went outside the tent and presently Gleeson came out, crawling on his hands and knees. They called to the Singalese and asked him if there was anything wrong with the dish, but he assured them the dish was perfectly clean. They then sent the Singalese for assistance and he brought down two men. Smart went for some mustard and took an emetic and gave some to Gleeson and also some salt and water, but it was of no use. They then walked up to the hotel Gleason burst out crying and said, I will never see my little boy any more. Smart told him to cheer up. He would soon be all right. Gleason then said, If anything happens to me, write to Margaret Gleason, Broken Hill, which Smart promised to do. Near Marshall's store, Gleason had a fit. He turned black in the face, his eyes rolled and his mouth twitched, and his body became rigid, and there was foam on his lips. Five or six men came down and brought with them a horse and dray. They took Gleason into the bar of the hotel and placed him in a hammock. Smart was then in great pain himself, but he took more emetics and then doses of castor oil, which relieved him. In the meantime, Albert Willett, who was suffering extreme pain, was also being treated in a similar way and ultimately recovered. Gleason then took another fit and died. In the morning, it seems that Gleason had spoken to Smart about a dream which warned him that something was going to happen, and he had made out receipts for two horses he owned to be transferred to a shearer named Hugh Shrive. But from other evidence brought forward, it seems that this was done after he had set fire to the Chinaman's hut, when he feared it might bring him into trouble with the police. Smart suspected the Chinese of having put poison into the flour bag to punish Gleason for burning down the hut. Ah Sin, whose hut was burned, was examined at the inquest. He said he heard the Europeans in the baker's kitchen and he ran away. When he came back, his hut had been burned down. He said there were no valuables in it and he was only sorry to lose the opium, of which there was 18 shillings worth in the hut. The Chinese said they did not report the burning of the hut to the police because they did not see the faces of the Europeans and also because they might injure their business. The evidence discloses nothing to fix the guilt of the poisoning upon the Chinese but it is the general opinion that one of them is the guilty party and the residents have boycotted both the storekeepers and gardeners in consequence. Well, it might seem clear from that article, but it still remains an unsolved mystery. That's The Long Reach Murder. Let's take a short break. The value of a minute is the keynote to civilization. From that has man found the value of his life. Think how much of your own life that is practically wasted might be brought to produce results if you could adjust your daily routine of duties to the tireless economy of time practiced in a well-adjusted manufactory. From the need of multiplying the minute, or what is essentially the same, multiplying the results, has arisen every invention, every advance in applied science and benefit. The wonderful Waterbury is one of these results, and from every corner of the civilised globe its praise has been resounded. 
Every part of its beautiful mechanism is manufactured by the most perfect machinery, and its construction is so simple that in the event of any accident befalling one of them, the injured part or parts may be duplicated at but small cost at any of the company's depots established for the purpose in various parts of the colonies. Purchasers should be careful to avoid cheap watches of Swiss and German make, purpose to travel on the reputation so deservedly gained by the Waterbury. Waterbury Watches. Now the final piece for the news on July 2nd, 1890, and this piece on the phonograph entertainment in Melbourne was reported in the Tasmanian News. The first public phonograph entertainment in Melbourne was given yesterday evening at the Athenaeum Hall before a large audience. In an introductory lecture, Professor Archibald described how the idea of the invention was first suggested and subsequently perfected. By means of a magic lantern, pictures of the early repeating machines were projected upon a white sheet and their mechanism was carefully explained. Diagrams were also shown of the incidence of sound waves as identical in the varying forces of the voice in pronouncing different sentences. Finally, it was demonstrated how the beating of a voice upon a sensitive diaphragm set a needle in motion which registered vibrations upon wax and how on the needle being subsequently redrawn over the track, thus made the diaphragm emit the same sounds as those first breathed into it. The lecture being over, a phonograph upon the stage was set in motion. All sorts of exercises were reproduced from it quite automatically, including cornet solos, coach horn calls, banjo solos, a banjo duet, a brass band and a clarinet and piano duet, all played from locations around the world. Vocal samples of the power of the instrument were given in the reproduction of An Horrible Tale, song by Mr J.L. Toole, and duets from Paul Jones by Miss Nellie Stewart and Madame Burton, and Messrs Snazzle and Leach. The entertainment was brought to a conclusion by the delivery of a message from Mr Gladstone to Australasia in the form of a verbal apostrophe to Lord Carrington. Now, for reference, folks, Mr Gladstone at the time was British opposition leader. He became PM a few years later. And Lord Carrington was the current governor of New South Wales. The article on this piece of entertainment technology continues on. The utterances of the phonograph were in most respects very natural and plain. Great precision of tone was noticeable in the musical productions. There could be no mistaking the identity of the instruments played... Sustained notes were more liable to be rendered indistinctly than rapid playing. In fact, a peculiarity of the exposition was that the complex harmonies of band music were produced with the nicety of detail and richness of volume exhibited in the original performance. Mr Toole wound up his melody with the query, How will that do? addressed apparently to a friend who was standing by whilst he was singing, and not intended for the phonograph, but the instrument placed it on record and now rolls it off quite naturally at the end of the song. So also with Mr Snazel's evergreen gag, Ain't It Sickening, which he ran off in a matter-of-fact voice at the conclusion of his duet and which the phonograph reproduces. 
This created a great deal of laughter. Mr Gladstone's voice was sonorous and carried an oratorical swing and force that was most impressive. Some of the vocal numbers were confused upon the high notes and were thus made to resemble trumpetings. The future improvement of the instrument will be in the direction of providing it with a flexible distributor so that its expression is not overwhelmed with heavy volumes of sound, supposing an easier remedy is not found in requiring phonograms to be delivered not too near the instrument. Quite amazing indeed, the first exhibition of the phonograph in Melbourne. Can you imagine going to a theatre just to see a record player on the stage there playing your music? That was entertainment back in 1890. And with that, we come to the end of today's bulletin. For July 2nd, 1890, this was the news. This was the news as a podcast spoken and edited by Broderick Matthews. All source material is taken from the reference newspapers and found online through the National Library of Australia's Trove website. Links to each of the articles mentioned today can be found in the show notes. The theme music is from Beethoven's Symphony No. 6 and sourced under public domain from newsopen.org. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure to subscribe and review it on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcasting app. This Was The News can be followed on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and any email correspondence should be sent to thiswasthenews at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to today's episode. The next episode will be out in a fortnight, released on Thursday, 16 July. I'm Roderick Matthews, and this was The News. Thank you.